Our first reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 39. It's on page 884 of the Pew Bibles. After preaching the gospel, the Apostle Peter said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The second reading is from Joel chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, page 741 of the Pew Bibles. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail, because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field, are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. And we're going to skip through to Joel chapter 2, verses 25 to 32, on page 743. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust and other locusts and the locust swarm, 
my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. So keep that open, because, um, you know, it's not often you get a chance to look at a 2,600-year-old uh, document and uh, examine your life in light of it. So I'll be flicking around a few of, of these passages, and, uh, and uh, I'll point them out to you when they arrive. Let's pray. Father King David said, and he learned it the hard way, that the sacrifice is acceptable to God or a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so, Father, show us your holiness, and then show us your grace, move in us, and renew us by your love. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Presbyterian writer, the late Frederick Beekner, said this of the Old Testament prophets. He wrote... At the level of words, what do they say, these prophet preachers? They say this and they say that. They say things that are relevant, lacerating, profound, beautiful, spine-chilling, and more besides. They put words to, the, to both the wonder and the horror of the world. We're going to look at the minor prophets. So we have been looking at the minor prophets in the lead up to Advent a few weeks ago, three weeks in Habakkuk. This week, the prophet Joel. Next week, a little break, the Reverend Craig Tubman returns. And then the prophet Jonah in the four weeks leading up to Advent. Why? Because when you read the prophets, you hear God's heartbeat. And it's a heartbeat that leads you straight to the life of Jesus Christ. God spoke to Israel long ago. In her darkest moments, you'll feel that. There's no way around the hard messages here. I still have the response ringing in my ears of a young man in New York City when I lived there, classic 20-year-old Manhattanite, 25 maybe. He listened to my sermon on Joel, and he said to me afterwards, I did not find your words, I did not find your words aesthetically pleasing. And I'm like, I wasn't trying to be aesthetically pleasing. 
How do you respond to that? The prophets help us to experience God as he is, not simply as you'd like him to be. The prophets were a wild bunch, Beekner again. The prophets were drunk on God. And in the presence of their terrible tipsiness, no one was ever comfortable. With a total lack of tact, they roared out against phoniness and corruption wherever they found them. They didn't want friends, they wanted converts. They wanted change. What is unique about the prophet Joel? Well, he is unique and alone, that is, alone among the prophets because he does not outline what sin Judah has committed. All the other prophets say, you've done this, you've done that, you ought to have done this, you should have done that. But he assumes that the people already know, and so he tells them what to do about it, how to respond. And consequently, it's a very emotional book. It's very emotional, filled with urgent imperatives. Did you notice that? Joel is then about responding to God, and then this gift, the possibility of grace, that you might find yourself responding to the actual God, the one that really exists. I say this because it's easier for us to react to anyone else but God. And we need to be careful about this, to respond to the presenting situation, to the dreams and fears that we have, because that's exactly what the Israelites did back then. They responded to the secular and aggressive world around them. They didn't respond to God as he is. They responded to anything or anyone that helped them to feel secure. And you know, that's understandable. They responded, for example, to positive preachers rather than negative ones. The ones who said, no disaster will come upon you. They loved them. They responded to traditional values. We have the temple, they said. Nothing could move us. They responded to other religions, especially the ones that seemed more attractive. There were ancient Near Eastern religions that combined sexual promiscuity with the worship of God. And Israel like, pick that one. But more importantly, and perhaps for our context, they responded to the bully politics of the world around them. They looked at Assyria, bearing down on us, or Babylon, and they said, Assyria will save us, and we can be the same. Like you, I've been thinking this week about the Essendon saga with Andrew Thorburn. I know City on a Hill, I'm friends with Guy Mason. Whole situation may be very sad, and I wrote about it this week in the Weekly News. Um, you can get the Weekly News very easily just by the Connect to Us page. And uh, you had your own responses, uh, but it will be very tempting for Andrew Thorburn or City on a Hill or Guy Mason, or us really, to respond to the pressure, to the aggression, to sort of cave in, like Israel responded to Assyria, or um, that is to find salvation through capitulation, to give in and just say what they want you to say and require of you. But Joel would say to you, you're facing the wrong direction, respond to me, um, interact with me, face me, trust God. This is why I wrote in the weekly news, I said this after a little introduction, pointing out some problems, I said, I do deeply believe that God has given the Christian church a simple strategy 
that over 2,000 years in the power of God's Spirit, the church has developed a simple strategy in these situations. That is, be faithful to God first, stay following the risen Jesus, read and trust your Bible, love all people, listen and learn, honour those who oppose you, gather strength from the sisters and brothers in Christ, and as Jesus himself said, be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Truth. You can't guess the character of a person without revelation, without them revealing themselves to you. You can't get the character of a person by intuition or by logic. Give an example. Joggy here, singing, fine voice. You can't know James unless James reveals himself to you. It's impossible. James has to show you his heart, his life. Meeting someone for real is the only way to properly respond to them. Anything else is guesswork. You can't make up your response to James or to God ahead of time, which of course is what most people do with God. They say, I think of God like this, or I think of God like that, but you are not the potter, you're the piece of clay. Joel can help you to meet God. Now, we don't know a lot about the prophet Joel. We know the name of his dad, Pethuel, 1 verse 1. As Bronwyn said, the beginning of our service, the prophecy is not dated, probably the 6th century, because he speaks to Judah, presumably before the Babylonian attack, which happened in history in 587 BC. So it's a similar period to the prophet Habakkuk. Two questions that are printed in your service sheet. One, who are we responding to? And two, what then is an appropriate response? Firstly, who are we responding to? And the answer is a God who has zeal, passion. In this prophecy and elsewhere, he describes himself as a jealous God, not in petty competition like our jealousy, but rather a strong protection of the covenant that he's made. He's passionate about it. Now, this is when you'll need your Bibles. Four things about God that you'll need to respond to. And it's got to be all four, not just one, and not just the first one. First, he is the God of justice, and therefore expresses personal, settled, just anger at the sin which is committed within Judah, the area around Jerusalem, and to God. It's personal. Now, like the other prophets, Joel doesn't consult a marketing manager. He doesn't try to get the comms right. He doesn't grease his audience. No little hook, no funny story, no line to get you in. Just one verse two. Here it is. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? There it is. The overused word of 2020 and 2021, unprecedented. God says, this is Seriously, unprecedented. Verse 3, tell it to your children, let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. This is a story that will be told for centuries and millennia to come and will be told right here today in this room, as Bronwyn said a moment ago, it's hard to imagine Joel considering this moment. But here we are. And it's news. It's big news. What is the news? That God is justly angry and that he's going to send 
this is strange, he's going to send locusts to devour or devastate the land. Look at 1 verse 4, such profound imagery. Listen to this. What the locust swarm has left in its wake, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left in their wake, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left in their wake, the other locusts have eaten. Whom, 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 whom. The land devastated. Now, I think this is a metaphor, and I'll come to that in a moment. But you might say, really? What an odd God that you are asking me to respond to. Well, maybe, but as I said, we don't get to make it up. God is the potter, we are the clay, not the other way around. Now, where does this idea come from? Well, God has made or had made a special covenant with the people of Israel and it's expressed in the Torah. God has not made a special covenant with Australia. You can't look at the floods and say, same thing. Can't do that. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 38, in the Torah, God says to Israel, if you reject me, if you disobey me, I will send locusts to the land to destroy it. 28, 28, 38, if you want to look that up. Now, the result of this might actually have been locusts, an agricultural nightmare. Or the locusts here are a metaphor for an army coming in from the north, the northern horde from chapter 2. This could be refer- this most likely referring to the Babylonian army, described as locusts marching forward, a black, a black in the sky. You all seen 300? That was the Persian army, but you know the point? The arrows darken the sun. That sort of imagery going on here. Look at 2 verse 1, follow with me. Blow the trumpet in Zion. You see the imperatives? Sound the alarm on my holy hill. That's in Jerusalem. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. What is that day? The day is close at hand, a day of, notice the words, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds, a day of blackness. The passage goes on, or the prophet goes on and tells you what that day is. It's the locusts um, storming. Look, verse, verse 2, like, a, like the dawn, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. Then this focus picture of the Babylonian army in 2 verse 6, at the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. We have records in the British Museum about such an army. They charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers, locusts, but we're talking about soldiers climbing walls. They march all in line, boom, 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 not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. So what's being said here? God has set a day for the Israelites, a day of darkness, gloom, clouds, blackness, when his anger will be expressed, and that anger was expressed in the Babylonian invasion. Nebuchadnezzar came in, flattened the city. That's who we're responding to, God of justice. And you say, that's pretty scary stuff. If this were all that we were responding to, I believe that our response would be just fear-based. Fear is a powerful catalyst, but a terrible master. And so within minutes of the prophecy starting, it's meant to be read in one sitting, 
three chapters, within minutes, Joel speaks of God not as divine judge, but as a gracious God who is indeed slow to anger. So God, secondly, is a God of second chances. 2 verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend or rip your heart and not your garments. I don't fake it. Why? Return to the Lord your God because he is gracious, he is compassionate, he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in love, wasteful in love, prodigal in love, and indeed he relents from sending calamity. He is indeed the God of second chances. That's good news, anyone who needs one. But it raises a problem for us. Which is it to be, judgment or grace and mercy? They seem like oil and water, chapter 1 and chapter 2. But they aren't oil and water, and anybody who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ knows that this is true. God is saying here in chapter 1, he will punish, he will bring them down, and he is saying that he will have compassion, he will lift them up. Death, then resurrection. Now we're getting close to the heartbeat of God. Now we're getting close to the life of Jesus. He's the God of second chances. He's also the God of all grace. Because in 2 verse 18, there's a twist in the prophecy. Then the Lord was jealous for his land, and he took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil to replace the ones that were lost, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you. I'll have a victory over evil. Therefore, 2 verse 21, do not be afraid, land of Judah, Jerusalem, be glad and rejoice. He is the God of all grace. He will give to Judah the promised good. He'll keep his covenant with Abraham. He will remove his wrath from them and forgive them. And it's not just that. It's not just begrudging. <laughs> the last thing to say is that God is abounding in his love. And he goes over the top. He promises to pour out his spirit on all flesh. You've got this beautiful, big, grand, present moment of redemption, death, and resurrection. And then afterwards, 2 verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just special ones. Your sons, your daughters, they will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on my servants, even on the slaves. Both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. A new work of God, a renewal of God's presence in the life of the ordinary person right down to verse 32, and everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see what's going on here? It's not just, okay, I've forgiven you, but I'm pouring out my spirit. I'll be present with each of you. I once read this whole prophecy out to a group of young people, and one young man who was not yet a believer said to me, really, what's up with God? How can this be? What's he doing? Within, you know, within minutes, he's gone from I'm angry to I'll forgive you to I'll pour out my spirit on you. Now, bear in mind that there's decades embedded within the prophecy, but he has a point. And my answer to him is this. Joel tells us that God is a caring God. He is a zealous God. He is an involved God. He is both imminent and transcendent at the same time. He cares about what you do, right and wrong, and what you've done in the past, 
what you will do in the future. He sees all things. He cares about whether or not you'll be saved, whether or not you'll respond to him, even tonight. He cares about whether you'll love him back and walk in the power of his spirit. For when I care about someone, I care about what they do. I care about how I'm treated by that person. I'm not indifferent to their actions towards me, nor their plight. You all know this. What's the opposite of love? You all know this. What's the opposite of love? It's not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. For when I love you, I care about what you do. I get steamed up about it sometimes. When I do not love you, I do not care about what you do. The worst thing to happen in a marriage is that one or both parties simply goes cold or indifferent. God does not go cold or indifferent. Let me choose an example from my former life. When I was at university, dating a young lady, um, I remember walking down Glee Point Road with her and I was talking about this person or that person. I was speaking rudely and judgmentally. I know it's hard to believe. Not. But my friend was listening to me and I was blissfully unaware of my sin and she stopped in her tracks and I kept walking and I turned around and I said, what, what? And she says to me, Justin, you are so selfish. You are so selfish. I can still hear her prophecy to me in that moment. I stopped in my place. I sat there in the gutter. I could take you to the gutter right now. We could Google Earth you down to the gutter. 30 years ago, I put my head in my hands and I said nothing. There's nothing to say. I knew she was right. In the silence of nothing to say, I had two simultaneous thoughts. You are right. I am selfish and I know you really mean it. You care enough to tell me. Your anger is what shows it. She was in that moment like the prophet Joel, like God. What then is an appropriate response? First, in, in Joel, tears. Tears. Now, it might not mean literal tears. Some of us are not cries. And it doesn't mean you have to cry tonight. As if listening to this necessarily produces tears. I don't mean, I don't, maybe, maybe not. But each of us, at some point, to do business with God, to sit in the gutter, spiritually, for some it will mean actual tears, but to put your head in your hands and in the silence realize that you need to do business with God. You can't keep playing at the edges. You can be detached no longer. I'm going to go to a holy God, a loving God, and I'm going to lodge an apology. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That can happen tonight. If you read Joel through, as I think community groups will do this week, you'll find out that the, the call to weep is throughout the whole prophecy. In fact, if you go through the prophecy, it's just imperative after imperative after imperative after imperative. Joel is unique in this way. Example, 1 verse 5, 1 verse 8, 1 verse 11, 1 verse 13. Wake up, weep, wail, mourn, despair, wail, put on sackcloth, mourn and wail, 
Jesus' brother James picked up on this exact prophecy, I believe, when he penned his famous epistle. Some of us need to feel the weight of our lack of interest in God, our half-hearted response to his call to follow him. Some of us need to deal with past sins. Instead of defending them in your mind, bring them again to the Lord, even as we respond in a few moments' time. Some of us have besetting sins that will be with us until we die, but there's no need to defend them or promote them, but rather to go to God who is merciful and kind and ask him by the power of the Spirit to sustain you, to put in strategies. And when we do this, when we sit in the gutter, God is not a God who says, good, I'm glad you're down there in the gutter, been waiting for this for a long time, suffer there, boy, suffer there, girl. God is not like that. No, no sooner do we sit in the spiritual gutter that he gets down there, in there with us. What else is the incarnation of Jesus Christ? God the Son. And he gets down there in the gutter to lift us up in grace and mercy and then shower us with his spirit and then walk with us through life. 2 verse 21, do not be afraid. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. For the day of the Lord, prophesied in Joel, is the day, of course, when clouds and darkness rolled over the land through the Babylonian attack. But when you read the New Testament, the New Testament testifies to this, that the day of clouds and darkness and blackness is the day that Christ died his atoning sacrificial death on the cross. Not a Babylonian invasion, but his death for sin, my sin. His resurrection as a defeat of all evil, and then the pouring out of his spirit. Those four things I mentioned before are basically the death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, all in the one prophecy. Do not believe for one second that the Old and the New Testament are in competition with each other. We do not respond to God in the abstract. We respond to God in his incarnation and in the cross and in the power of his spirit. This is the kind of God we're responding to, a God who loves you to death. And this is why tears should be said, leading to, secondly, repentance. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee who said to God or said to himself, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You know, I'm a pretty good person. But a tax collector, we're told, stood up the back and beat his chest, we're told, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man, the second one, he went home righteous before God because whoever humbles themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is why the prodigal son came to his senses in that pigsty in a far-off country and he said, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What does the father do? He runs out, embraces him, and he throws him a party. This is why King David, having committed a sexual crime, thought covering it up might work. Nathan comes to him with a story. Nathan says, you are that man. David penned Psalm 51, blot out my transgressions according to your unfailing love. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What does God do? Restores him, but not without consequences. 
This is why when God pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's Joel. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's the question of Joel. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what did Jesus say to Simon, the cynic, when that woman burst into his party, tears flowing and wiping Jesus' feet with her tears, the room filled, filled with the scent of her perfume? We read in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, and I love that by the way, do not mishear me. He looks at the woman and keeps his gaze on her while he speaks to Simon over here. He turned to the woman and said to Simon while looking at the woman, you see this woman? I came to your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, therefore I tell you, haha, <laughs> here we go, I got it. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Remember Bigna on the prophets? They speak words that are lacerating and beautiful and profound. They didn't want friends. They wanted converts. They wanted change. And you could change right here in your seat by praying a prayer with me that I'm going to pray now. And then we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to confess our sins and receive forgiveness and be lifted up. And if you have prayed that prayer, I'd love to speak to you. I really would. Come see me straight after the service because I want to continue praying with you and perhaps telling you what's next. Let's pray. Father, like the prodigal son or the tax collector in Luke 18, just like King David or the woman in Luke chapter 7, we come before you with a broken spirit because a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. We come broken, but in Christ we come mended, healed. We come contrite, but in Christ we come, we, we come forgiven, showered with your mercy and grace. Bowing down, we are lifted up in Christ with his resurrection. And you poured out your spirit on us that we might walk with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We pray this in his name. Amen.